I saw that somewhere in America, every 40 seconds, somebody will have a heart attack. How many of those heart attacks would you say could be prevented? Essentially 100%. You know, coronary artery disease, I think our friend Caldwell Esselstyn always likes to say this is a disease that need never happen. There are some people who have genetic disorders who will have some elevated cholesterol, but even if they follow all of the recommendations that we've put out through our primary prevention guidelines and then recently updated to talk about sleep, which you and I should talk about, people should be able to avoid coronary heart disease and hardening of the arteries. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Garden Grove, California, McKinney, Texas, and Busan, South Korea. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 20 of season 6, number 416 overall. And I got to tell you that we are getting more than we bargained for on the show today. Talking about bonus health knowledge here today, because the original idea was to give three healthy heart habits that will help to prevent a heart attack. Three of them. But my guest today, he said, no, we're doing more. So what are these habits that you could be establishing right now, today, that could help prevent you from having a heart attack? Well, we will be finding out from one of the most respected cardiologists anywhere on the planet today. Dr. Kim Williams is with us. Now, you may know him from the documentary The Game Changers, but he also is the former president of the American College of Cardiology and the current chair of the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Louisville. So very well credentialed, very well respected, and there is so much that we will be learning from him today. And as always, with this being the exam room live, Plenty of opportunities to answer questions from the exam roomies as well. More great ones from you guys. Somebody wrote in wondering about frozen vegan pizza. And because it's vegan, does that automatically make it healthier than delivery? And then we get into salt versus fat in terms of heart health. And then the supposed health benefits of wine. Is it actually good for the heart? We're going to have Dr. Williams weigh in on that. And then I can't make this up a completely different kind of drink that is coming to Starbucks. Get this, olive oil coffee. Yeah, two things you probably didn't think would ever be married together. It's a real thing, olive oil coffee, and it's called Oleato. And soon it will be at your local Starbucks. And I'll tell you this much, more likely than not, not going to be serving that at the exam room live in LA when we're out there on March 30th. Actually, I can pretty much guarantee that right now. But if you want to come out just for the show and not the oleato, you absolutely can join us. We may have regular coffee though. Join Dr. Neil Barnard, myself, Dr. Christy Funk at the eBell on March 30th and should have an announcement soon about some special big name surprise celebrity guests. You're definitely going to want to lock your seat in today for this one. So tickets start at just $15. 
and you can reserve your seats right now at pcrm.org slash events. And I've heard, by the way, about some exam roomies coming in from Canada, others coming in from the Midwest, and we would love for you to be there as well. Tickets start at $15, but the VIP tickets, they include a special plant-based dinner before the show, exclusive photo ops and giveaways as well. I'm going to have my big pants out there. We can snap some fun pictures with those. And then once the show begins, you're going to have premium seating as well. So pcrm.org slash events is the place to go to lock in your tickets today. But right now, let's get back to today's show and these heart healthy habits. Now, a lot of people are surprised by just how resilient of a muscle the heart can be. I mean, we're talking about undoing damage done from years of eating junk food. I mean, you know the days when you just had a rotten tough time at work or whatever is hitting the fan in your personal life and you go for the entire pint of ice cream, you eat the entire bag of potato chips and then you go back for more. And even if you're not having a bad day, even if you're not binging on junk food, you know, we all tend to sit at our desk all day and then come home and sit on the couch all night. Well, we can still undo a lot of that damage. Research has shown that this is one of the few instances where you can actually unring a bell. So let's find out how to do that with a dear friend of the show, cardiologist, Dr. Kim Williams. Dr. Kim Williams, thank you so very much for coming back to the exam room. And thank you for having me again. It's always good when you're here. February is Heart Health Month, and we just had Dr. Columbus Batiste on the podcast. And I feel like there's so much more that we could talk about when it comes to building a healthy heart. So I want to start with this. You know, I was crunching a few numbers before the show. And I saw that somewhere in America, every 40 seconds, somebody will have a heart attack. Sadly, what that means for you and I is that at least 52 people will have a heart attack during this discussion today. Of that 52, how many of those heart attacks would you say could be prevented? Essentially 100%. This is a you know coronary artery disease. I think our, our friend Caldwell Esselstyn always likes to say this is a disease that need never happen. Uh, there are some people who have genetic disorders who will have some elevated cholesterol, but even if they follow all of the recommendations that we've put out through our primary prevention guidelines and then recently updated a few weeks ago um, uh, to talk about sleep, which you and I should talk about, uh, people should be able to avoid coronary heart disease and hardening of the arteries. Uh, you know, people, we talk about, um, you know, the last one I heard was 34 seconds. I'm hoping that uh, what you heard was uh, more updated and things are getting better, but it doesn't seem to be. It seems like uh, our rates are getting worse because our risk factors are getting worse. And as it turns out, uh, we do have uh, something that everyone should pay attention to. It's called Life's Essential Eight. It's from the American Heart Association. And it really is talking about all the things that we should be doing to prevent heart attacks. So if you made me push down, you know, uh, to, to, to make eight of them three, I could collapse a few of them. That's one thing. But the other one is I'm always going to put plant-based nutrition 
at the beginning of the conversation because you can't exercise your way out of a bad diet. <clears throat> we do know more about exercise, um, that our recommendations were maybe not optimal for coronary heart disease, saying everybody should do 150 minutes of, of moderate exercise. And I was telling all my patients 300 minutes of, of moderate exercise. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, there's a nice publication talking about getting rid of plaque out of your arteries, that is plaque regression, that the best way to, to uh, one of the ways to do it is high intensity exercise. And so, you know, there's been a few people talking about high intensity interval training and turns out they were right. And yes, high intensity exercise is dangerous, but not exercising intensely is probably more significantly more dangerous. And so we have to be respectful of that and try to train up to the level where we can do some intense exercise. Um, so I'll put that uh, diet, plant, whole food plant-based diet first, exercise second. Uh, and then there's uh, really the habits that people have um, that I would uh, really uh, put in the forefront. And that is never smoking and making sure that you get enough sleep. And so it's hard to choose, you know, who's a, it's a tie for third. I think not smoking is probably more important just because it's not just about heart attacks. It's so many cancers that tips that over to being important. Um, but we've, we're finally recognizing in cardiology the importance of sleep and the importance of stress management. Uh, and, that, you know, if we could actually go on and on and, you know, have uh, Life's Essential 9, if we talked about uh, mindfulness and stress management, which some of our uh, colleagues, such as Dean Ornish, have been talking about for years, uh, and most of us have you know, just ignored it. And, you know, acupuncture, tai chi, yoga, meditation don't really mean anything. Well, it turns out they actually do. And there was actually randomized trial evidence for each of those things uh, in terms of lowering cardiovascular risk. Um, but if I can, can I throw in something in the fifth place. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's your list, man. We're in bonus time. Let's there keep go. going. It really would be uh, knowing all your numbers. And that is knowing what your blood pressure is. Everyone should have a blood pressure cuff at home. Uh, even if you're, you know, vegan and a systolic blood pressure 104, which I always get, I still have them at home. Um, knowing what your cholesterol is, knowing what your, uh, that you are really not just weight control, but body composition control. So there are people who are losing weight, but they're losing muscle mass and bone density. And so their weight going down isn't really helping them. On the other hand, there are people who are really trying to get fit and they're you know, power lifting. And as those quads get bigger, your weight goes up and you might be considered overweight by somebody's chart, but it's actually muscle mass that's healthy. Uh, and importantly, knowing what your blood sugar is. So if you have good blood sugar, good weight, good uh, cholesterol, and good, good uh, blood pressure, then you will actually feel fitter. And the best way to get those four things is plant-based nutrition. So there's a way in which all eight of them are kind of inter, uh, intercorrelated. I, I do know one marathon runner who was a smoker, and I know one vegan who was a smoker. But, but you know, it, people who are concerned enough about their health and have healthy habits tend to make all these things happen together. And we don't see a lot of smoking. How in the world could anybody be a marathon runner and smoke? It just does not seem like physically possible to me. I agree with you completely. I mean, you can make the argument that as you're damaging your lungs, you're getting uh, carboxyhemoglobin. People don't know that they're getting carbon monoxide. And that carbon monoxide could actually help you train, you know, how you go up into high altitude um, and increase your endurance by getting your blood count up. 
But the problem is, I don't know that it's really going to work because you can get your blood count up, but it's still got the the, the carbon monoxide on it, and that's not really all that reversible. So it's uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And you you know, someone who's around smokers smoking a little, they could probably get away with it um, in terms of. Um, you know, lowering their cancer risk. I hear that all the time. Oh, but particularly now that I'm in Kentucky, which is a tobacco growing state, and there's a lot of support for the tobacco industry down here in terms of uh, uh, patient utilization. However, um, I get a lot of people, by the time they come to the cardiology clinic, they've thought it through and they're telling me, you know, I'm cutting back. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm down to a half a pack a day or only two cigarettes a week. And what they don't realize is that that's a really a discussion about primary care, and oncology, because for cardiology, uh, stroke, uh, any blood vessel uh, dependent disease, any cigarettes at all, hurts the lining, the endothelium as it's called, and you try to repair that endothelium with plaque. And so there's, you know, everyone should stop uh, completely. Should we take the same approach with food as we do with cigarettes? Because there are a lot of people that I'm sure will come through and tell their doctors, well, look, you know, I'm down to just eating pizza twice a week or going to the drive through three times a week, something like that. Should that same approach be taken with diet as with tobacco? Right. If, if I make the correlation, it's uh, tobacco and cancer, where it's completely dose related. OK. Uh, and for food. It's completely dose related. When somebody tells you, oh, you, you know, Epic Trial said you can get 15 years longer and, and not even describing the fact that you not just not alive, but you're also living more during those extra 15 years uh, if you do plant based diet. And if you choose to do half of it, you get half of it. And uh, that seems to be a relationship uh, like cancer and cigarettes. Heart disease is the strange one for smoking. Nobody should ever. Um, and, and there probably are some things that, um, that it's more important to eliminate them, again, because of cancer, such as uh, processed red meat. And, but most of the data, it seems to be fairly linear relationship. Uh, the more you do, the more you lose if you're doing, um, uh, you know, the... Uh, animal products, particularly refined grains, things with saturated fat, things with a lot of sodium, um, uh, sugar-sweetened beverages and juices. All right, let's uh, go back and uh, revisit the uh, the list of, I think we were going to do three, maybe got up to four, maybe five. Um, <laughs> lots of good information in there. Um, but before we do that, uh, if there's a question that you have for Dr. Williams, go ahead, post that in the comments or in the chat. We will get to as many as we can here in just a minute when we open up the doctor's mailbag. A lot of great questions already in there. Um, in terms of sleep with the guidelines being updated, what is the current recommendation there? So you should be averaging seven hours of sleep. And it's interesting that in terms of uh, mortality, it's kind of a U-shaped curve. That is people who don't, who sleeping less than six hours have an increased mortality. Seven may be optimal, but if you're getting more than uh, eight or nine hours of sleep, that actually increases mortality as well. Um, and so every time I look at one of those studies, it says that they've controlled for all of the variables all of the variables have been looked at, but it seems that people who are sleeping nine hours, there's something else going on and that increases their mortality, whether it's depression or the like. But in terms of sleep optimization and making sure that your sleep quality is good, uh, particularly if you're overweight, um, it's worth having testing if you have daytime sleepiness um, because your blood pressure goes higher, your adrenaline levels, cortisol, 
you get hormone imbalances when you don't have the sleep. And the, the, it's very clear that your, your mind is going to function better uh, when not just driving and falling asleep, that sort of thing, but actually your performance at, at work. So important to, to focus on sleep for the quality of life and quantity. Elizabeth, who's watching us on Facebook right now, is wondering about the amount of exercise. You said 300 minutes of moderate exercise per week. Is, is that the recommendation that you have? That was the recommendation. Now we're changing it based, based on a couple of weeks ago, which of course means it's too soon to hit anyone's guidelines, uh, uh, to mixing in some high intensity interval training. So what does that really, really mean? So first of all, just become a tennis player. And so that, you know, and pickleball unfortunately doesn't count because <laughs> movement. Um, but you know, when you're in playing tennis, you're going corner to corner and um, obviously that works really good. If you're good at tennis, if you're just hitting the ball around, it's not as intense. Uh, so that's one, one way to do it. But, um, in, instead of doing, uh, a, just a long, uh, jog, put some sprints in there. And so it's a good training technique that's uh, age old for improve, improving your fitness and your speed, uh, and, and quickness is to, you know, you're jogging down the street, you see two light poles. <laughs> okay. When you get to one, you sprint to the next one. Uh, and just keep doing inter interval training like that. Uh, it not only strengthens you, um, but it actually get, gets your workout, you know, you get uh, plenty of more miles in, uh, in a shorter amount of time, if that's the motivation. Um, but it really is important to try to add some something that really uh, sends you past your aerobic threshold. And then you can back it down for a little bit, catch your breath again, and then boom, do it again. What would your message be to somebody who hears that 300 number and it's just so intimidated, they kind of figure to themselves, well, why even bother, right? That's just too much. I can never reach it. So that's another one, Chuck, like cigarettes and, and cancer, um, plant-based nutrition, where it's completely linear relationship that is just getting off the couch and being active at all, you know, doing activities of daily living. They, these things are actually going to improve things. But if you want to optimize it, that's when we're talking about doing, you know, 300 minutes and, and mixing in some high intensity exercise. And so how do I approach a patient who hasn't been doing any of it? If they've got their orthopedic limitations, you know, we get them to the right consultants to try to help with that. Physical therapy, cardiac rehab, those are all uh, available to us um, many times. But one of the things that I always try to do is say, you know, well, what can you do right now? Can you climb stairs? Can you, you know, walk for 10 minutes? And uh, if that's the answer, yes, I can walk for 10 minutes. But pretty much after that, I'm fine. Okay, I'm, I'm done. Okay, great. So you take your stopwatch out and you walk for your 10 minutes. And then tomorrow you add 30 seconds. That's all. Just add 30 seconds. And uh, when you, and if you do that, adding 30 seconds every day, uh, for a couple of months, you've actually added a, a, a substantial amount. 300 minutes is basically 45 minutes a day. And so uh, it's, it'll take people a while to get up there. But once they get up there, they're enjoying it. They're stronger. They feel like the activities of daily living, whatever it is that they're doing, are going a lot smoother because they're stronger. Absolutely. And look, you know, I can talk to that from experience. I mean, when I first started out on this whole transformation, I could barely walk across the street, but that's where I started. 
And then it just got up to around one block and two and then a mile eventually over time. And it did take time, but I got up to five miles a day uh, every day on my lunch break and it just got built into the routine. So it, it's not this really daunting chore that it seems like at the beginning you work up to it over time and you start enjoying it and before you know it i mean you kind of feel like you can't live without it it's amazing how your your mind changes uh, like that have you worked with people in the past who have have kind of had that similar experience oh absolutely um you know i'd i'd like to say that it's the uh, the usual response but it, it actually is highly motivated people <clears throat> people who are appropriately afraid. Uh, and a lot of times that's because of something that's happened to them or, or their family members. And they get motivated uh, because they can see the other side. Uh, a lot of our population just is sort of walled off uh, thinking that they can eat anything and do uh, you know, not much exercise and that they'll be okay when it's completely not true. Yep. Uh, One thousand percent agree with you there. So let's go ahead here and open up the doctor's mailbag. We have a lot of people watching from around the world right now. Michelle is watching in Costa Rica, says she absolutely loves the show. Craig is up early in Australia, where it's a little after three o'clock in the morning there. Fantastic. Molly is in Israel. Thank you so very much for tuning in. And I have no idea where Laura Platt is, but she says it is negative 31 degrees Celsius. I can't even fathom. Uh, like it must be Antarctica. I have no idea. That's what it sounds like. That, that may be a record. Uh, there is a large portion of the audience right now, though, that is getting blanketed with snow. Interesting question. You were talking about intense exercise. Um, Mommy Vegan Nummy at 1208 is wondering whether there's a correlation between snow and heart attacks as one of our goals here today is to prevent that. Like, is it a bad idea from going from being a couch potato to going out in the driveway and starting to shovel? So it really is uh, an, an issue. Everyone has heard that. If you're you know, a 60 year old man, overweight, not in shape, that you, know, you wanna hire somebody to do your snow, I would say um, you could do small amounts. Uh, make sure that when you're shoveling, you're doing a, a low amount of workload. That is, you, there's six inches of snow there. You go to the bottom and try to lift the whole thing or you could do it two inches off the top and two inches in the middle and then the bottom two inches. It'll take you longer, slower, less intense. Um, but the, there is a concern uh, for, because pretty much, unfortunately, Chuck, um, all the studies now show that three-year-olds have coronary heart disease. And so everybody's got some plaque because of the diet that, that's common uh, around the United States and the Western world. And so you, what you don't want <clears throat> is for any of that plaque to rupture. And one of the best ways of making it rupture is to have the artery squeeze. And that's exactly what happens when you go out in the cold and you're breathing cold air and trying to exercise. You get so a, a, an increase in coronary tone, uh, otherwise known as coronary degree of spasm. And the arteries get smaller but the plaque doesn't get smaller. And so it, you can get some obstruction going on and some pressure on the plaque to, uh, to break. Then you add the sheer forces of the exercises uh, that you're doing when you do a you know, so-called dynamic and isometric exercise. The dynamic part is where <clears throat> you're lifting and the isometric part is where you're lifting against resistance. And it's, you put those three things together, dynamic, is isometric, and cold, um, this is a bad combination for people who are not really fit when they have coronary disease. So, um, so that really is answering the snow shoveling, but, you know, um, 
uh, Mommy Veganami was actually talking about snow and heart attack. And so it, it turns out that there is uh, a, a correlation between colder weather um, and epidemiologically, if you look around the world, you do see more heart attacks uh, in colder weather. <clears throat> now, you know, there, there may be a variety of explanations for that. Uh, places that are colder tend to have more animal products in their diet and less vegetables. Uh, and so that probably is a major contributor to it. But, you know, the amount of daylight that people have, colder areas having less daylight, uh, that's important as well for, for cardio, cardiovascular health. All right, let's go ahead and uh, talk nutrition here. I think that that's uh, what a lot of our listeners, our viewers like to do here. Whitney has an interesting one. Is salt or fat a bigger concern when it comes to your heart? That's a good one. Um, it's like trying to choose between your uh, two things that are so damaging. And usually you can rank order them like, you know, lead is may not is terrible, but it may not be as bad as arsenic, which isn't as bad as cyanide. But, uh, but that's probably where we should go with that. That is. Um, and I would say if I'm going to pick one and I'm sure every, I would love to hear other people's opinions. Uh, I would say that uh, uh, saturated fat is a bigger concern. Uh, and so there's, uh, and, and so both of them have to be explained a little bit in that, uh, first of all, I know people know that there are different kinds of salts and potassium chloride is actually good for you. It actually lowers your blood pressure, magnesium salts, lower uh, blood pressure and arrhythmias. So the, but when people say salt, they usually mean sodium chloride, like table salt. And there are salt sensitive people um, and African-Americans is your, your typical case, but many people are salt sensitive and there are other people who are not. And so they could have, and you know, there was one trial, I still hard to talk about that trial without smiling a little bit, uh, where Salim Youssef in the pure trial did 24 hour urine specimens of, of uh, sodium uh, and came out that the optimum for life expectancy was four grams to four to five grams. That's four to five thousand milligrams of, uh, of sodium per day. Well, you know, the pure trials were 19 countries that had nothing to do with the way or very little to do with our, our Western life expectancy. And so um, I but suffice to say, there are publications that say that salt is not that bad. Then you have the opposite on on the fat side. There are some fats that are actually good for you. Um, the polyphenols and extra virgin olive oil, they lower your cholesterol. They're associated with less stroke. Um, monounsaturated fat is good for your cholesterol as well. Saturated fat is terrible, increases mortality. And trans fat is so bad that even the United States has banned uh, restaurants from selling um, you know, trans fat containing items. Um, so, so we really have to distinguish you know, on the salt side, are you salt sensitive? And one way to do that is if your blood pressure is up, cut your sodium back to our American Heart Association recommendation with 1,500 milligrams per day and see if the blood pressure improves. And the other side of it is in terms of fat, you got to know which fat you're talking about because some are very helpful. Now, I know there are a lot of people who say that they that <clears throat> no oil, no salt, no, you know, that you don't want to do any of those things. Um, and if you are overweight, it doesn't matter how good that fat is, you probably should be backing off of it and limiting it. Whereas a thin person who has a high cholesterol might benefit from the monounsaturated fat and polyunsaturated fats and uh, extra virgin olive oil, canola oil, handful of 
uh, oils that actually might be good for the cholesterol. You know, I, I hear you talking about that. And I, I was, uh, I've spent the last couple of weeks talking uh, to groups in Florida and in South Carolina. And part of my presentation is going over my old menu. Now, my hypothesis has always been that had I not made substantial changes when I did, I would not have lived to see 30 years old, but I've actually never asked a cardiologist flat out whether or not that hypothesis has legs because as part of my tally, just one meal, just one meal uh, out of the day for me, it was always Taco Bell. And um, with the sodium alone, it was over 10,000 milligrams. Now, mind you, there were snacks and two other meals throughout the course of the day. And I'm already 420 pounds before I make the change, putting on weight at just a rapid, rapid rate, 26 years old. I mean, is it plausible that given the fact heart disease runs in my family, given my diet was that poor, that I may not have lived to see 30? You know, it's funny you should say that. Uh, are there people who survive that? Absolutely. The question is, are they living dead? And that's what was really, you know, if, if you were lucky, you could have a nice heart attack. Your family would be really mad at you, but you'd be fine. <laughs> You've got nothing going on, right? Um, but to have a stroke because the blood pressure was so elevated with 10,000 milligrams of sodium, uh, to go into kidney failure and end up on dialysis three times a week for several hours and you feel lousy after dialysis, you feel good for a little bit and then you're starting to feel lousy because you need dialysis again. These are, you know, death is not the only issue. Uh, it's really having a very bad life where you're not uh, uh, contributing to society. You're not contributing to your family. You're actually a big negative because they have to take you around. Um, you know, they have to take off work and uh, become unreliable in their employment uh, because they're taking care of you. And if I, so I actually talk about that a lot with my patients who are trying to transition from the way you, the way you did to let them know, you know, this is your health uh, relates to wealth for your entire family. Uh, and so please, you know, if you can't do it for yourself or for your cardiologist, do it for your family, do it for your, uh, your neighborhood uh, where you could be helpful versus uh, a, a negative. Do it for your country because, you know, people end up on dialysis and you can't pay for that. So you automatically um, qualify for Medicare if you've been on dialysis for two months, almost $100,000 per person uh, just for the dialysis. Yeah, and uh, per year. And that's something that most of us can't sustain. So who's paying for it? We all mm. are. Wow. Wow. Dialysis is so common. I don't think a lot of us think about the price tag that comes with it. I mean, it's it's just one of those things. Oh, my goodness. And, and that's a great way to look at it um, as far as being there for your family or being uh, somebody who was a living dead. Like I honestly didn't feel like I started to live until after I made those changes is like, I kind of feel like I wasted the majority of my twenties. So I kind of got to do my twenties over and then my thirties were really, really good. And now I'm 40 and things are still rolling. So the transformation it's inside and out, it's fantastic. And absolutely. If you don't want to do it for yourself, do it for your family. Um, let's shift back over to food. Here's a question. I used to eat a lot of pizza as well. So I love Amy's question here. Is frozen vegan pizza healthier than calling up and getting something delivered to the house? 
So it's so important. Uh, again, uh, we're not doing any branding despite her name, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, uh, no, no, just a coincidence, just a coincidence. Indeed, unless it's her. Uh, uh, just reading the back of these uh, pizza boxes, uh, which I obviously do, uh, it's an interesting story of trying to provide healthy things for your family and turning it into a business. But the real issue is that um, you, you can make uh, a vegan pizza with uh, tomato sauce that doesn't have a lot of sodium. That's number one. Number two, making sure that the cheese doesn't have a lot of saturated fat. And that is if a, if a vegan cheese is coconut oil based, you to stay below the recommended level, which is like 10% of calories coming from saturated fat as a maximum, that would actually translate to just a handful of those uh, coconut oil-based cheeses, but there are loads of vegan cheeses now that are not coconut-based. And you look at the back and you see saturated fat is, is one gram, not three or four uh, per serving. So then you've got, uh, then the, the next issue is the dough. And uh, is, that, is that crust made specifically by refined grains, which classic uh, pizza would be wheat, wheat flour, and if that is the case, then it's very, very unhealthy. And, you know, so I was quoting the pure trials, you know, smiling a little bit, but there are also uh, pure trial publica publications that showed us that refined grains were some of the worst things we could do. And that's been conformed, confirmed in the United States, multiple trials, whole grain versus refined grain, such a big difference that people are eating refined grains. It's actually worse than eating animals, maybe not for the planet, and I always like to say it's kind of good for the planet because it gets rid of humans, but uh, that's <laughs> not our goal. Okay. <laughs> that, that last part threw me there. Uh, okay. Wow. Okay. I got to ask you about this because there are quite a few people right now who are asking about olive oil and the, the drum continues to be beaten for olive oil that it is in fact a healthy option. And now get this, Starbucks is going to release a olive oil coffee. Literally, mm -hmm. olive oil coffee. They're going to put the olive oil in the coffee. And this is happening right now in Italy already. And it will soon be brought over to the States. Um, olive oil coffee. I mean, without even seeing the nutrition facts on this thing, do does this sound like a good idea or is this just another bad creation? So it's a, uh, a really interesting thing. Uh, I'm not sure I would like the taste of it, but, you know, that's a, a different thing. Uh, you know, big companies tend to do marketing, so it must be something that's not only palatable, but enjoyable. But I would say before doing that, yeah, everyone has to do the test. Uh, and there's a couple of ways to do this. And I've gotten away from uh, using a, uh, a tape measure in clinic on every patient every time because I had a patient uh, write on my, I have a little intake form, write down your, all the things that have happened to you since the last visit. Uh, and uh, he wrote, he has a new allergy. And I looked and said, what allergy? He says, I'm allergic to tape measures. <laughs> but people really don't like having you know, being called out and putting a number on their chart. Um, so I would say an, an alternative is to everybody, you know, very personal, just reach down and grab, you know, next to your uh, belly button and see if you're grabbing any extra fat. And if you have any degree of central obesity, you really should avoid uh, the extra fat that you would get by putting olive oil in your coffee. But again, like I was saying before, <clears throat> if you're, I don't know that they're using extra virgin olive oil. Uh, if they are, the polyphenols that improve blood vessel function 
okay? As well as lowering uh, your cholesterol. If you're a thin person with high cholesterol, it may not be a bad thing. Uh, Deborah at 1234 is wondering about avocado oil and whether that may be a healthier option. I'm not sure if she's thinking about putting it in her coffee or just with cooking in general. So avocado oil is actually uh, fairly healthy. Uh, and we actually have more data on avocados. I know we have some prominent you know, people in the plant-based world who thought that because they're so oily that they were bad for you. And uh, I, because they were so oily, I always found them distasteful until two large trials were published, okay? uh, one in women, one in, in the general population, saying that uh, lowered uh, cholesterol, number one, and extended life expectancy. So all of a sudden, I love avocados. What is with that? Hmm. That is interesting. So, okay, so let's let's get some clarification. We're we talking about eating whole avocados or, or the avocado oil. Yes, so I was actually talking about both. Um, and the avocado oil, um, it's it is. I probably should be listing it when I'm talking about uh, the things with monounsaturated fat and polyunsaturated fat that in, in large amounts that can improve your cholesterol, um, because avocado oil is one of those. What What do you think the limit there is? I think that. Um, for a lot of us, when we hear something is healthy, we think that it's healthy in unlimited quantities and we would drink half a bottle if we enjoyed the taste. How much is too much, do you think? It's, again, that's really going to depend on your biochemistry and your morphology. That is, what is what I want to know what the lipids are. I want to know what your blood pressure is too. Um, it, so a good, a great example of this was... Uh, your, um, uh, your mentor and colleague, Neil Barnard, did a trial of vegan versus Mediterranean diet. And the Mediterranean diet was done in the classic way that had a lot of olive oil. And guess what? Yes, the uh, cholesterol was better, uh, the risk factors were better, but the blood pressure went down remarkably with the, um, with the Mediterranean diet, more so than what you would think when people are eating animals. You, it doesn't lower your inflammation, doesn't lower your LDL cholesterol, but the blood pressure went down. Why? Because of the olive oil and these, these, the improved blood vessel effects of the extra virgin olive oil. So we, we would like to, to say that you know, it depends on who you are, blood pressure up, thin, high cholesterol, maybe a lot of it is good for you. Uh, people who are overweight, obese, morbidly obese, none. And so it really, you have to individualize it. There you go. That's a hot take right there, Dr. Williams. I don't mind telling you that is a hot take. Um, Scooby G is watching uh, in Philadelphia, home of the nearly world champion Philadelphia Eagles, uh, wondering if they should be a little bit more concerned about buying hummus from the store that has oil added to it, or should they go with the no oil route? So, yeah. So <clears throat> the hummus is really good for you. It is. I understand that it's processed. And, you know, we always say that we don't want to eat plants that have gone to a plant. <laughs> but uh, but the fact of the matter is it's minimally processed. And there are the gradations of <clears throat> there's the so-called Nova um, uh, processed and ultra processed uh, categorization. And this is minimally processed. You're basically crushing it and putting it in a package uh, and adding some flavoring. And yes, adding some oil um, to it. It's going to be the same answer. Am I, am I going to go for it? Thin, used to have a high LDL, now, now much better. Uh, I would go for it 
with the olive oil. Um, if you know, if you put a coconut oil in it, absolutely not. The saturated fat would would have the reverse effects. So again, you have to individualize oils based on uh, the blood pressure, the weight, and the cholesterol. I love man. Every time the show, you just you learn so daggone much, man. That's what I love about the show is like you're hearing about research that you haven't heard about before. You're looking at different ways that what hummus to pick up in the store. Like this is a, this is an all encompassing show. Um, I love it, man. Uh, well, let's grab two more really quickly while we still have you here. Uh, G L O R I A Gloria. She's wondering whether wine is good for the heart. <sighs> so for the longest time, so I'm one of those people, you know, probably family, you know, so I, I admitted what happened with the avocados, how I basically have my tastes calibrated to randomized trials. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and so the one that I would, you know, and, but there, there's some experience there. I always hated wine because of the alcoholism in my family. And so, gosh, I was, I always was trying to say that I do absolutely everything that has proven to improve uh, outcome, life expectancy. So I'm playing tennis and vegan diet, you know, doing everything, refined grains out the window, white rice changed to black rice, brown rice. Just you, you publish it and it's peer reviewed and it's good data. I'm going to do it. <clears throat> so I really struggled <clears throat> for the longest time with all of this whole idea of red wine, specifically uh, resveratrol, uh, and the having a mechanism for improving cardiovascular outcomes. Then people started to chip away at that data and realizing that, well, if it only works in France and only, you know, if it's Bordeaux, well, maybe it really isn't real. And at this point, when you look at the negative effects on, on the liver, on the brain, um, at this point, all of the major uh, medical societies are in agreement that, the op that we need to change our, our hypertension guidelines because that was 2017, that's six years ago. Uh, and we were saying no more than one drink for women per day and no more than two for, for men. That really needs to be revised. All the recent data says that there is no benefit whatsoever uh, from doing alcohol. And so therefore, if there's no benefit and there's a little bit of risk, why just not, you know, just don't do it at all. There you go. And let's end with this. Um, from time to time, we get asked about this. And I know that there is somebody in the chat today who is also wondering about, well, is it ever too late to do this? And is it ever too big of a shock to the system? Got a very long email from somebody by the name of Charlie recently, who essentially was talking about wanting to help somebody in their family who was in their 80s, but was scared to suggest that they go on a whole food plant-based diet and start loading up a little bit on the exercise we were talking about earlier, thinking that could be too much of a shock to the system because they've heard these stories of somebody who was a drinker and a smoker their entire life. And within a year of giving up the bottle and the pack of cigarettes, the person died. And so Charlie was just wondering compassionately, could there be instances where having lived such an unhealthy life for so long, then suddenly overnight going to such a healthy lifestyle could just be too much of a shock to the system, too much to take. So the important uh, issue is to understand that the, the old concept of a bell-shaped curve, which I think most people in the audience will understand, that there are outliers. There's the average human response and then there are outliers. 
And there are people who live to 106, drinking, smoking, eating bacon, processed meat. And there are other people who, you know, grow up eating that stuff and they're diabetic by age 10 uh, and, and suffering uh, from illness. And so, um, so it's difficult to individualize, but I can tell you the average response. And that is any, removing any deleterious uh, behavior because it will be removed. It's just, do you want to have, <laughs> do you want to have it removed when you're alive? Uh, at, at some point, uh, is going to be beneficial. And, <clears throat> you know, the anecdotes that we've all heard of somebody stopping, you know, XYZ behavior that's bad for them and then doing poorly, the question you have to ask is what would have happened to them anyway? And um, would have that bad thing that happened to them happened sooner? And so I, I would say that uh, we have good data uh, on human behavior, human physiology. We have uh, good data that would tell you that people who do a whole food plant-based diet are going to live longer and live healthier lives. And the moment you start is when the improvement begins. All right. Now, look, I got to ask you also really quickly about the upcoming Health Equity and Lifestyle Project Conference that's going to be in Huntsville, Alabama, April 2nd through the 4th. All of the advice that you've given here today, everything that we've talked about really can be applied across the board universally no matter of somebody's economic status, race, where they're living, all of that. And that is part of what this HELP conference is geared toward uh, educating people about. What are you going to be speaking about at the HELP conference? So as usual, I'm going to be talking about uh, ethnicity and, and uh, mortality uh, from cardiovascular disease and the effects of social determinants of health. And I would say that um, we've got a fair amount of data uh, that tells us that we're doing the wrong thing in terms of nutrition. And it turns out that one of the organizers of this uh, with the Plant Nutrition Project is uh, Dr. Columbus Batiste. He's in, in California, and I know he just uh, you just interviewed him. And you know, therefore, that he has a podcast called The Slave Food. And I have to admit, I was, when, it, when he came out with it, I thought it was bold just to be upfront and admit that our African-American community, and when I grew up, they were trying to feed me the things that were inherited from the great, great, great grandparents uh, who were in slavery. And we're still eating those things in the African-American community. And it has uh, so much more effects. We have more than 50% of our adults having some form of cardiovascular disease, a lot of it hypertension, the obesity issues that we have, uh, higher stroke rate, higher heart failure rates. And you know, we talked about dialysis and the financial blight on the country that that has. Uh, African-Americans are 12% of the population and 35% of the dialysis patients. And so, and it's been uniquely tied to eating red meat. Uh, and animal protein. And I hope that anybody who's got any chronic kidney disease would just put that in your search engine and look at Kidney International and National Kidney Foundation asking people to please go vegan um, because it's going to improve that kidney function. Well, we have to get that message out. And, you know, uh, my eyes have been opened by moving to Kentucky, you know, away from living on the south side of Chicago for so long uh, and seeing all the healthcare disparities there. Um, here in, in Louisville and in Kentucky, it's really a hair less about race and a more about other social determinants of health, poverty. And so we talk about uh, black population in the U.S. having a 21% higher cardiovascular mortality rate. Very true. 
But in Appalachia, uh, I had to learn to say it right uh, when I moved down here, uh, <laughs> it's 33% higher cardiovascular mortality. And it's, this, it's the same issues of food um, and access to care, access to poor care, access in poor care, uh, poor accessing care poorly. And we should be able to create systems and education to fix it, not only in the, the, what they call it, in the hood and in the holler. I'm not sure either side would like that characterization, but um, that's a, a saying down here in, in Kentucky um, that I think people know we're real, really talking about, that these issues need to be addressed uh, wherever we have them, and the, the cardiovascular mortality is excessive. Um, that's, that's on us if we don't fix it. So let's put this out here simply. Uh, let's give a scenario. You have a white man, you have a black man, you have a Chinese man, and you have um, uh, an Indian gentleman. Uh, mm -hmm. If all of them are raised under the same circumstances with access to adequate health care, uh, high quality foods, uh, higher education, uh, their health comes more or less will very much be similar. At least they're, they're statistically going to have similar health outcomes, correct? Oh, kind of. But I got to give you four little scenarios there. Okay, Give, me. So, give them me. to me. Okay. So first of all, if, let's put women in the mix. Um, you cannot out-educate the, the matino, maternal fetal mortality issue that we have in the Black community. Third world countries, you can get a PhD, you can be Serena Williams, um, you know, multi-million dollar famous athlete and still have major, major complications that are, that are almost unique to our race. Then you have the South Asians who are <clears throat> probably not just genetically, but uh, culturally with the refined grains and the saturated fat and the ghee that they're going to get cardiovascular disease and it's going to be worse than our African-American population. Um, then you have uh, the, the Asian person who, if they would just stop the smoking and they would just, uh, uh, they would still have the difficulty getting the, the usual therapy because they're so statin sensitive, okay? And so the, uh, what we are trying to get across is that every population has their own uh, sensitivities and proclivities for disease and you know, how they can respond to therapy. And this is what the HELP program is, is all about, trying to get people to understand those <clears throat> distinctions so that everyone gets the right kind of therapy for their ethnicity. You know, we are so similar. We're genetically almost identical. And, you know, this race, a lot of it is just cultural um, uh, and not really biological, but there are some minor differences. If you take thousands of diseases, you'll find one or two um, uh, between races and, uh, and those really need to be understood and managed. There it is. So look, I mean, this this conference is super eye-opening, super important. April 2nd through the 4th in Huntsville, Alabama. You can register online right now at planttritionproject.org. And Dr. Kim Williams, um, I would love to extend an invitation to you to come see the show live. We're going to be doing it in New York in May. Our first live and in-person episode is going to be March 30th out in Los Angeles. If you just happen to be in the area, you're absolutely more than welcome to come then. But I think East Coast might be a little bit easier for you. Um, I'll get you the details on that. But if you are watching this in the LA area or you just feel like coming to the West Coast to check out the show, Dr. Neil Barnard is going to be there with us. Dr. Christy Funk will be there with us. Dr. Columbus Batista. East will be in the house that evening as well. We have so many people. And oh, by the way, 
major celebrities to be announced. So get your tickets today, pcrm.org slash events. And there's a link to that right now in the show description and in the episode notes. Same thing for the Plantrition Project, so you can get your tickets for the HELP conference. Dr. Williams, my friend, this has just been so great. I The chat was so active today, so many people watching live, and I'm sure we're going to have tens of thousands of others who watch this a little bit later on as well. So thank you so very much for bestowing all the wisdom on us, my friend. Appreciate it. You're having me as always. And uh, congratulations and look forward to your live meetings. That should be fun. And indeed, there is a link to everything for you right now in the episode notes. So let's go back for a second and talk about this olive oil coffee. I mean, this just amuses the bejeebus out of me. So the olive oil that they will use here, Starbucks, here's the nutrition breakdown. Every tablespoon of it, which is about the equivalent of a pump that the barista would put in the cup, each one of those has 120 calories, 14 grams of fat, and 2 grams of saturated fat. Now, to their credit, a lot of the Oleato drinks, they will be made using oat milk. So that's a big plus there, right? Non-dairy. But then you have these others, like the Oleato Golden Foam Espresso Martini. And what you have there is espresso, vodka. I didn't even know Starbucks served alcohol, really. I mean, maybe just at select locations. So you've got the espresso, you've got the vodka, vanilla bean syrup, and what they call Golden Foam, which is made from sweet cream. And then, and then on top of that, you get the olive oil. Now, there are studies that show that coffee can have significant health benefits. And then there are also studies like the one published by the American Heart Association last year that shows that for people who have high blood pressure, drinking two or more cups of coffee a day can double the risk of dying from cardiovascular disease. Interestingly, with that same study, it found that green tea did not carry the same risk, despite the fact that it also has caffeine. But there's also other research that shows drinking one cup of coffee per day may lower the risk of having a heart attack, even among people who have already survived one. And yet another big study in 2022 found that drinking two to three cups of coffee a day could actually help you live longer. It was a longevity study. So there is a lot to sort through here, but while I have not looked closely at any of those studies in particular, and certainly I am not a doctor, I just can't imagine that the added fat from the olive oil blended with the sugar and the extra calories from everything else equals a heart healthy drink. Just can't see it. And that is, in fact, just my two cents. But by the way, by the by, Los Angeles is one of the test markets for the Oleato drinks. But yeah, again, none of that will be served at the live show that we're going to be doing at the eBell on March 30th. And you know, that really reminds me of my friend who used to put a stick of butter in every cup of coffee he would drink. And he thought that it was going to help him lose weight. Yeah, it didn't really work out too well for him, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. 
I'll tell you what though, Dr. Williams covered a lot of ground on the show today, had a lot of great tips for having a healthy heart. But let me give you four more just to wrap things up here. All right, enough with the wacky olive oil coffee talk. Let's focus on these four tips that we give at the Physicians Committee. All of these are big benefits from eating a plant-based diet. So when you're talking about heart health in a plant-based diet, first thing that comes in here is high blood pressure. You get big help there because a plant-based diet that is high in potassium can actually help to lower blood pressure. And then from blood pressure, we come to cholesterol. And another plus there, so many millions of people struggle with high cholesterol. Well, when you eat a plant-based diet, and that includes high fiber foods, that then also can help bring cholesterol levels down. And then with atherosclerosis, diets that are rich in saturated fat and cholesterol, they cause plaque to build up in the arteries. That's no mystery there, that's no surprise. That restricts blood flow. But you know what there's not a lot of in a plant-based diet? Saturated fat or cholesterol. And then finally, the fourth thing is inflammation. Talked a little bit about that today. Well, plant-based diets are notorious for helping to reduce inflammation, which by the way, inflammation can also lead to heart disease and a whole host of other conditions. So you couple all that together, those four things, your big benefits, lowering high blood pressure, lowering high cholesterol, bonus for helping to ward off atherosclerosis and inflammation, all of that package comes from a plant-based diet. So you put that together with the tips that Dr. Williams was talking about today. The sleep, the exercise, getting stress off of your plate. And it's no surprise that he said virtually every case of heart disease, virtually every heart attack could be prevented. The former head of the American College of Cardiology is who said that today. And there is virtually no person more qualified to have that opinion. This is a man who has devoted his life to studying the heart, how to treat and prevent heart disease and heart attacks and strokes. And he is saying that nearly all of them can be prevented. And that prevention goes for you as well. The Barnard Medical Center is powering this episode of the Exam Room Podcast. Their doctors and dietitians practice lifestyle medicine and promote plant-based nutrition with in-person visits in their Washington, D.C. office and telemedicine appointments in 18 states. Visit barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500 to learn more. That's barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500. If you haven't already done so, please go ahead and subscribe to the Exam Room Podcast on Spotify and give us a follow on Apple Podcasts as well as leaving a five-star rating. And then in the review, let us know how a plant-based diet has improved your health and we might just feature your story right back here on the show when we do our next five-star health success. But for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Kim Williams for being here and raising our heart health IQs, taking them to new heights. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, 
I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.